0: Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview.
1: Today, we'll be talking about junk science or what my guests will sometimes refer to as poor people science, not because it was invented by poor people, but because it is used against them to horrific outcomes. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law, I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by Chris Fabricant, the Director of Strategic Litigation at Innocence Project and the author of the new book, Junk Science. Chris, welcome back to Talks on Law.
0: Thanks so much for having me back, Joel. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's our pleasure. Last time you startled me with the rude awakening. As a lawyer, I think, Many lawyers feel the same. We like to imagine the criminal justice system being just. And a big part of what you do is expose some of the worst kinds of injustice. Tell us about your your book quickly. I mean, we'll be discussing some of the cases you describe, but I just finished it. And I'm not surprised. It left me feeling pretty sad about criminal justice.
0: You know, what, I, what I'm trying to do with the book really is create a new genre of not true crime stories, right? And I wanted to have a mainstream popular culture book that told the stories in a compelling way, but also exposed you know, the use of unreliable forensic evidence in the United States and trace the history of the use of forensic sciences in this country through the stories of my clients' struggles for freedom, my innocence clients, because we see so much in popular culture about forensic sciences and about you know shows like CSI and forensic files and, and the rest, in that we don't really see the real reality of the way that that evidence is played out in criminal courts around the country, you know, in places like Mississippi and in Texas and some of the other places that I take the reader into actual courts.
1: And even in some of the most sophisticated FBI labs in the country.
0: Right. You know, I mean, and this is always depicted in these very um, pristine and sterile environments with computers making matches and precise measurements being taken. And you always get the right guy and the bad guy gets busted in the end. And, you know, what I wanted to show was really that's not the way that our criminal legal system really works. And that so often these forensic techniques and the ones that I'm like deferring to as junk science are really just subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence. And we're really able to like unpack and take the time in a book to talk about how this first came into evidence, what were the circumstances that were created that allowed somebody that had no basis in science and a technique that had no basis in science into court and be used in capital litigation and still in use today, 50 years later, with no scientific underpinnings.
1: We'll trace a bit of that in today's conversation and you mentioned it quickly, what you mean by junk science, but maybe we could dig into that a little bit here. We're talking about pseudoscience theory masquerading as science. How would you describe junk science? The
0: way I described it very specifically in the book was subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence, and what I mean by that is that there's no empirical basis for the opinion.
1: I like the way you, you compared it to astrology, and for those who are astrology fans out there, uh, we're not coming at you, but it's similar in the sense that there can be very elaborate techniques, or there can be many books written about it, but it's it it's not having to face that hard edge of scientific rigor. It's not being tested in the way that we assume when people talk about science.
0: Yeah. You know, I use the astrology um, analogy really because exactly astrology has been around for a thousand years, right? And that there have been many, many textbooks devoted to it. There are very elaborate ways where to do a proper reading and that there are wisdom that's handed down from generation to generation. And, you know, there there are basically rules, you know what I mean, to it, you know what I mean? But that doesn't mean... That astrology is capable of predicting the future. And it doesn't mean that if your reading turns out to actually come true, that astrology works, right? You know, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? And so this is some also true with forensics that have not had real scientific rigor that underlies the, the opinions. But what you have is the received wisdom from generations of forensic practitioners that are passed down from one to the next to the next. Thick textbooks are written, lots of articles are written in peer-reviewed journals, but there isn't actually scientific research underlying any of the opinions, it's just an opinion. And when you have that, and so many of these are subjective opinions, right? And so in a subjective opinion is going to be influenced by bias, both explicit and implicit bias. And so when you have Forensic sciences, which are really viewed as, and they really are, a law, an arm of law enforcement, right? They're not independent labs that are producing scientific evidence for either party or for the court. Most forensic labs, almost every forensic lab, except for the one in Houston, which I think you've had Dr. Peter Stout on the show talking about, you know, the independence of the Houston lab, which is a model for the rest of the country.
1: And for those listening, we we did do an interview with the director of the Houston lab, we'll We'll recommend you take a look at that as well to talk about some of the new techniques in forensics.
0: And what's important about the independence of that lab and what it's lacking in all the other labs around the country is that when you have Forensic analysts that are working in law enforcement and working hand-in-hand in law enforcement and are part of the same budget and part of the arm of um, the, the, either the prosecutor's office or the police department, and you're dealing with subjective evidence, right? And so many of these techniques that I talk about in the book are essentially trace evidence, right? So footwear and fingerprints and firearms and tool marks and bite marks and the rest— those are not measurements that are not taken in these, and so you have bias will slip in. You know, I mean, and, and one of the the most stark examples of that uh, I talk about in in the book as well is the in the aftermath of the wrongful arrest of Brandon Mayfield on a fingerprint match after the Madrid uh, the bombing of the commuter train in Madrid, Spain, in two thousand four. There really never been a high-profile, wrong match, you know, I mean, in, in a fingerprint case before. And Brandon Mayfield had never been to Spain. and.
1: Thank goodness for him. Uh, poor guy. If he had just come back from a trip to Madrid, he'd be one of your clients now.
0: He'd still be in prison, right? The, uh, so what, what that showed was that this is subjective. It is really prone to bias. And when the FBI looked at Brandon Mayfield, he happened to be Muslim. He happened to have been married to an Egyptian national. And he had happened to represent somebody that had once been convicted of providing material aid to a terrorist organization, none of which was relevant to the, the bombing of the train at all. But that type of information seeped into the analysis. And so the experiment that I wrote about after that Was done by E.T.L. Drawer, and what he showed, what he did, was very clever. Is that he took these five very experienced latent fingerprint examiners, all board certified. I think one of them was at the FBI, and he gave them latent prints from crime scenes and exemplars. And what he didn't tell them was that it was from their own prior casework that they'd already come to conclusions uh, around this evidence before. And the only thing that he changed was the contextual information that was in included in the case file, something like the suspect confessed or there were eyewitnesses that would point you one way or the other. And three-fifths of them changed their minds from their original conclusion. Right? It's astonishing. Yeah. I mean, this is not bite marks, dude. This is fingerprints, right? And so we know that if we don't separate the crime labs from law enforcement, we're going to get biased results.
1: And maybe this is a good time to, to point out, I mean, we're going to be talking about basically flaws in the criminal justice system but some of these are flaws in us as humans in the way that our minds process information as you mentioned in our biases and we're not suggesting that these are these fingerprint scientists or forensic analysts are some type of villains they're trying to they're trying to put bad people away they're trying to do their job well but they were manipulated and it showed just how easy They can be manipulated.
0: Yeah, I should be very clear is that, you know, with notable exceptions, some of whom I write about in the book, forensic analysts are well-intentioned, often brilliant people and are, you know, trying to do the right thing and are not interested in framing innocent people for crimes that they didn't commit. What the, the issue really has been is that there isn't, for example, in this country, something like the FDA for forensics, right? So we insist that we have clinical testing of toothpaste, of aspirin, toilet paper, anything that's going to be used by American consumers for public safety reasons, right? You don't have anything like that in forensic sciences. There's nothing standing between a conviction resting on junk science, a death sentence resting on junk science. The only thing that can prevent that from happening is a judge today. And a judge is not going to be consulting the scientific literature right, to decide whether or not this technique is admissible. We know what the judge is going to be looking at. The judge is going to be looking at case law, a legal precedent, and we know that legal precedent doesn't really change, right? You know, very very incrementally. And science is this process that is always moving forward that is always abandoning previously uh, held beliefs when new scientific research falsifies those hypotheses.
1: I love the way you you make this so clear that they're not only not the same but they're antithetical in many ways and it's almost like a Trojan horse if you get in some junk science in a case where, yeah, the guy definitely did it, and then you get in some more junk science in another case where the guy probably did it, and then all of a sudden, this type of made-up nonsense is being used to put an innocent person in jail for the rest of their life, or worse, to the death penalty.
0: Precisely right. You know, what I mean, and, and you know, in the book, I track you know the the first mark case, and the-
1: yeah. Why don't you share that case? I mean, this one, this one's pretty pretty gruesome. I think there's a nose bitten off.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a disgusting homicide. There's no question about that. So often they are. And I had to sue um, the um, Department of Justice to get access to the American Board of Forensic Odontology's archives, you know, on the First Amendment grounds that, and on FOIA grounds, just to be able to do the kind of research that we could look at the ABFO archives and see, you know, kind of how this was invented.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they were reluctant to hand over their files to you.
0: Yeah, they were. <laughs> they had took litigation, right? So when I got in um, to the archives, you could see there was forensic dentists were working in a medical examiner's office alongside with pathologists and doing the work of identifying human remains, right, which is a civic, a Plus, right? You know what I mean? And this is a good deed that, you know, when you hear stories about somebody's body being burned beyond recognition and they're only being able to identify them through the use of their dental records, that's your friendly local forensic odontologist that did that, right?
1: And that gives a lot of, I mean, it's tough, but it gives comfort to the family to know one way or another. It can remove that pressure of, of not knowing. Yeah, it's a service.
0: Absolutely. And so they're, they're working with dead bodies. They're working with forensic pathologists, but they aren't getting into court and they're not acting as expert witnesses. And in the, late to mid, the mid to late 60s, suddenly we were going, there was a whole new kind of cottage industry that was developed around the use of expert witness testimonies, both on the civil and on the criminal side. On the civil side, there was the explosion of the legal system as a result of personal injury litigation and mass tort litigation and um, toxic tort litigation. And on the criminal side, we had this explosion through the um, the drug war and mass incarceration policies. And so what happened is that being a forensic scientist suddenly became a career that you could aspire to. And the dentists were kind of working in forensics, but not really getting into court. And they weren't getting into big trials like the Sam Shepard trial that I write a little bit about in, in the book.
1: This is the basis of the, of the movie The Fugitive.
0: That's right, yes. So when I got into archive, you could see that there was active advocacy on behalf uh, by you know a handful of forensic dentists that bite marks could be a useful way to identify perpetrators. And so this group got together, they started having seminars, they started thinking about, well, maybe this is really a technique that we could use for identification. And then they looked for the perfect case. And that case was People versus Mark, uh, Walter Marks in Los Angeles in 1974. And what happened in the Marks case is that the victim was his landlord, and she was an elderly woman, and he had um, gone to visit that day that she was murdered, and but then ended up not spending the night in the uh, room that he rented from her. So it was odd that he wouldn't have spent and spent it in a hotel instead on the night that she was murdered. So there was like that reason and a couple of other reasons that kind of pointed toward Walter Marks as the likely perpetrator of this very gruesome crime where the victim had been stabbed many times, but also had had this bite bite mark, you know, as you pointed out, on her nose, right? Which in your nose is cartilage, right? It's not skin the way that you have where bite marks would change constantly, you know, I mean, from one day to the next because of the healing or decomposition process. So they got into court on this case, and that that case, the judge said out loud, I am going to admit this evidence even though there's been no scientific research, even though there's never been any orderly experimentation in this field, because I can see with my own eyes whether or not there's been a match here. And this won't be the kind of whiz-bang technology that's likely to mislead a jury. It's going to be very straightforward. I can see the match. And this is not even scientific evidence. It's just, you know, matching two things together. And I think it's good evidence. And so it gets admitted. Walter Marks gets convicted. And then what you see, and I track this, is like that this case law just spread like a virus around the country. And suddenly courts, without ever testing any of it, were calling it scientific evidence. You know, a California court, the next one that, that cited it, compared it favorably to breathalyzer evidence, you know, at the time, right? Wow. And that this was a better, you know, scientific method.
1: One thing that I I found interesting was that in your research, you mentioned that some of these dentists even described it as distinct saying that they didn't think they could analyze bite marks, God forbid that you could try and look at a bite mark on the skin, they needed a three dimensional bite, like what was what happened in this Mark's case, where they could really see into the cartilage.
0: Right. It was like clay. But then immediately after that, it was on anything, you know, and like these faint bruises in skin and skin and the rest. And then, you know, the next thing that happens is Ted Bundy. Right. Which was one of the most incredible research projects that I've ever done is read every article ever like, written about Ted Bundy in the newspaper during, you know, his crime sprees.
1: Did you expect to discover that one of Ted Bundy's crimes was the proliferation of junk science?
0: No, he has a lot more victims than we really know. If you think about that, in that sense, yeah. I um, what was really surprising to me is that you see that when he finally gets to Florida, right, and the probably is the best known murders that he was convicted of, and the assault of two other women who survived was in the Chi Omega uh, sorority house in Florida State University.
1: And this is after he had already murdered and escaped from prison twice. I don't know how many people he had killed by then, but he had already escaped from police custody at least twice.
0: Yeah, he took out like the ceiling tiles in his jail cell and and shimmied over like, you know, the, the crawl space and then jumped out a window and hitchhiked his way across the country. I mean, it was really part of a different era. And as far as that goes but one of the things and this was true even back then is that that they never really had any evidence against him right there was like these vague descriptions that uh somebody handsome or conventionally handsome you know had been seen with women you know before that they had been disappeared but there was brutally that was it there was never any fingerprint evidence there was never any eyewitnesses nobody had survived
1: and he was a law student chris or he, he or a law graduate
0: yeah, and two of like his trials, he defended himself, and that like also kind of contributed to his fame or infamy. You know, what I mean, because the first nationally televised trial in our nation's history was the Ted Bundy trial. Wow. And what you see, and when I was like unpacking all the layers, you know, what I mean, because everybody, and I'm not doubting his guilt, you know, what I mean, but what I'm saying is that when I was looking at the evidence they actually had in that case, it's really nothing. In that there was a one uh, witness who saw a man leaving at the sorority house at you know, around two or three in the morning, and she had misidentified that person as an employee of the sorority at the time.
1: Well, using all kinds of junk science as well. I mean, you write about how she was subjected to hours of hypnosis, uh, which then led her to identify someone who worked for the, the campus or worked for the sorority.
0: Yeah. And then they they were doing a psychological profile of the killer. The FBI contributed, right?
1: What would the killer look like? And it was the polar opposite. Yeah.
0: Totally wrong. Said he would be an uneducated person. And Bundy was a law student, right? And that said that he would have been, had a dominant mother, you know, for some reason, you know, I mean, and his mother was totally doting, you know, so it was wrong. Like it's been wrong. Like in so many criminal profiling, you know, that the Unabomber was supposed to be, Uneducated, according to the FBI profile, and he had a, a mathematics degree from MIT. So all that comes down to, and then the sheriff originally, when when they finally capture Bundy in this kind of fluky pulling over, you know, what I mean, and the Florida Panhandle, acknowledges that they don't really have any evidence. They don't have any physical evidence. He points to some of what there looked like there was some maybe some bite mark on one of the victims, but it was too faint. You're not going to be able to use that. It's really bad evidence. Blah 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 and then when they don't find anything else they go to the bite marks and suddenly that sheriff was calling it bundy's signature that he left on the crime victim right and then they called in these forensic dentists who had been working towards this type of case to become like forensic celebrities and they became stars because the case rose and fell on that testimony right the bloke and clock was right on that you know that day again
1: i put my myself in the position of the prosecutor in that case. And I hope, I hope I wouldn't have done the same. I hope I would have held true to, to the principles of justice, but you could imagine him really patting himself on the back saying, wow, I really, uh, you know, I got creative here. I put this monster away. You know, I saved, you know, the next three murders because he was escalating. He was, he was rampaging. And here this prosecutor probably thought, by doing this I'm you know I'm, I'm doing I'm doing the Lord's work in a sense not thinking about the precedent that it would create
0: yeah you know I mean and and you can certainly you know from my view even with like so little evidence he would have been convicted anyway and that you didn't need it and for that purpose and actually the case that he was actually executed on was a different homicide in Florida so
1: so the bite market analysis wasn't wouldn't he wouldn't have uh, escaped
0: No, he was like, he was captured, he was done, you know, but but yeah, that kind of mindset, you know, as I, and this is really why so many courts, in addition to legal precedent, are reluctant to take tools from a prosecutor's hands that are useful to convict a defendant that the judge, the court, the jury, the prosecutor that everybody believes did it, right? And what the work of the Innocence Project shows is that can have a lot of evidence that suggests that somebody, you know, did a crime or committed a crime and be wrong. You know, and one of the really important things, and this is something else that I talk about in the book, which was so important to the exposure of the flaws of the criminal legal system that we have, was the intake criteria of the Innocence Project. So when Barry Shack and Peter Newfeld started it, there was a, you know, a tidal wave of letters came into the Innocence project, of uh, prisoners seeking help, proving they're innocent. And so the idea was like, well, how are we going to select which one of these people that we're going to help, you know? And so what it was decided and this, I didn't decide this before I was here, but that. The only criteria would be if we can find biological evidence and test that evidence. Would that prove innocence? In other words, if DNA is available, and we get it tested, and it comes out in a way that excludes the, the the defendant or identifies the actual perpetrator, we'll take the case. Doesn't matter if there's six eyewitnesses. Doesn't matter if there's a confession. Doesn't matter about you know any of the other evidence. That's the only criteria. And what it showed was that all of these forensic techniques that are thought to be infallible were not, you know meaning I mean, and that, that actually led to dozens and dozens of wrongful convictions. Today, we know that nearly half of all wrongful convictions um, overturned by DNA evidence, faulty forensics was a contributing factor. Then we also know that eyewitness identification is not as reliable as believed because that's a leading contributing factor, right? And then we know that now that people confess to crimes that they didn't commit.
1: And, you know, you mentioned witness, you know, bad witness testimony as being the leading contributing factor. But in a sense, it's the same. It's it's subjective expert testimony. (laughs) You know, this is the person I remember because I saw them, uh, which strikes me as rather similar to some of the analysis here where it's, you know, this is the hair of the murderer. And it looks I know it because it looks just like this other hair.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's also related to the same sort of subjectivity and influence of a, an investigator's theory as forensics are, right? And so there are ways that we can gather eyewitness identification evidence that is an accurate test of the witness's memory rather than a confirmation of a, an investigator's theory as to who it is, right? So we should and we advocate for this constantly blind wit, um lineup administration, right? Because even when a, um, a police officer or a detective or a crime investigator of some sort is not deliberately biasing a an eyewitness, there are unconscious ways that the the lineup administrator will cue a witness as to the likely suspect, and then after that, the witness makes an identification police officers often will say something like, good job, you got the bad guy, right? Something like that. And that will increase a witness's confidence about that. That'll
1: help lock it in. It may, it may color in the memory in a way uh, that doesn't reflect what actually was seen.
0: I mean, that's exactly what, you know, what I argue is Nina Neary's identification of Ted Bundy in the, the Kyle murders, right? Is that she was very sure, you know, by the time we got to trial, that it was Ted Bundy, she saw fleeing the the apartment, and you know it probably was, right? You know, what I mean, but that wasn't her memory. It was plainly, you know, the, her memory. And they, you know, as we talked about, they hypnotized her. And and we should be clear, is that humans' memories don't improve. They never improve. They can only be corrupted, right? The hypnosis does not work in the way that we it's depicted on television or in the movies. You know, I mean, it just doesn't. You know, and there's still today people who believe somehow that everything's in there somewhere we just need to unlock it right and that hypnotism will be you know some tool and it's just not
1: i think my crim law professor do you know jim coleman from duke
0: i know who he is i don't know him
1: yeah anyway i think at some point he worked on the ted bundy case pro bono on the like death row you know he described it in our class that it wasn't like he thought ted bundy needed to be released but that there's there was so much Injustice, procedural injustice in his case that.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, you know, what's really like ironic about the, you know, when Ted Bundy was on death row after this conviction, right next door to him on death row was Robert Dubois. Robert Dubois was also convicted on Mark evidence. It was also by Richard Souveron one of the founding fathers of the ABFO, Robert Dubois was innocent. He was exonerated two years ago from Florida's death row, right? So he and Bundy right next to each other, it makes the point exactly what you were talking about. You know what I mean? Is that, you know, the broken clock was wrong in Robert Dubois' case. And it was right in Ted Bundy's case.
1: When we're talking about wrongful conviction, and if you read a fantastic piece of literature called junk science by uh, Chris Fabricant you'll you'll see tons of examples of of people wrongfully convicted the prisons aren't filled with wrongfully convicted are they chris it's not it's not as though everyone in jail was was not guilty
0: no certainly not but more importantly to me is that we have 2.3 million people in various forms of incarceration at any given time in this country and the highest incarceration rate in the world and that if you think maybe one percent have been wrongfully convicted which i view as conservative we're talking about tens of thousands of people so that's an incredible number and then some of like but what i don't write about are some of the other junk science convictions that happen every day right and you talk about presumptive drug tests where that are used for you know misdemeanor and felony drug arrests where criminal defendants are compelled to plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit that are based on presumptive drug tests just so they can get out of prison or jail because they can't make bail so that happens every day right you know i mean and my first arraignment shift at the bronx defenders which i talk about in the book right when i was a trial attorney in the south bronx i Didn't really have an understanding of the innocence problem until I was on the ground in criminal court. And my first arraignment shift, I had, you know, at least, you know, a half a dozen innocent clients who had done absolutely nothing wrong.
1: Who were willing to plead guilty just to get their lives back, uh, just to get back to their kids.
0: Yeah. You know, so I don't want to overstate the problem, you know, meaning like to suggest that everybody's innocent in prison. But it's certainly a massive problem. I mean, and, you know, and certainly when you talk about, you know, death row cases, you know, when we talk about the numbers of people that are convicted and on junk science that are in death row, I have three clients on death row right now that, you know, are all three put there by junk science, you know what I mean? And those are very, very hard to undo.
1: Chris, it, it reminds me of a conversation we had with um, John Donahue at Stanford about how in capital cases in particular there's just so much pressure on prosecutors because these aren't just happening in in the courthouse and no one will ever hear about it these are sometimes front page news stories these are make or break career type cases and under those conditions sometimes prosecutors are willing to go outside of the norms to to reach in in a sense and and that's some of what you describe in these and the origins of these techniques.
0: Yeah, you know, in, in an exploration of the Dallas District Attorney's Office, you know, um, through that lens, I talk about four wrongful, what I argue are wrongful executions in, in Texas, all based on various forms of junk science. Arson investigation, bite marks, polygraph evidence, all used, you know, to execute what I believe, and I think that the evidence is overwhelming, whereas when I came to the Innocence Project, you know, in 2012, I started working on capital cases. And what I learned is that so many of these cases, actually the evidence and the, the worst forms of junk science are being used in those cases. You know, you would expect it to be the opposite.
1: The more serious the case, the more serious the law that's that's used to convict.
0: Yeah, well, just like that you, you stretch for evidence because, you know, capital cases, and usually when you look at these crimes, you can see why, if you are a proponent of the death penalty, why you would you know choose to prosecute these crimes? Because they're often really heinous, you know, murders. You know, I mean, and and things that are you know, become emotional, or black men accused of violating white women. You know, I mean, a lot of death penalty litigation around that. A lot of wrongful executions, and you know, inside and outside of court, based on those theories. So you get like the kind of this really sensational crimes, the Ted Bundy type crimes. And you get structural racism type crimes. And those are like where you're getting in capital litigation so often. And so many of these cases, you know, that you see is that really wild theories that have been used as alleged forensic evidence to, you know, really ensure convictions on these cases. So it's been surprising.
1: Well, I want to talk about some of those cases and I want to talk about some of the legal techniques that you're using at Innocence and that lawyers can use to push back when pseudoscience is being used in the courtroom, but I teed up the conversation by describing it as both junk science and poor people science. Let's talk about that for a bit. And here I mentioned, you're not saying this is science invented by poor people. This is science that's being used to disadvantage, to uh, incarcerate poor people, but not rich people. So here, I think we're talking about the civil criminal divide. Maybe you can tee that up for the for the listeners for the viewers.
0: Sure. You know, when I was looking at you know this the explosion of the legal system in this country and kind of tracking the um, path of a case called Daubert into the Supreme Court, I was looking at you know what were the forces that brought that case to bear in in the court, and so. What was happening in the 70s and 80s on the civil side was mass tort litigation and a lot of and personal injury litigation. And a lot of that litigation was successful. And a lot of it was based on subjective speculation, masquerading as expert witness testimony. Right. And corporations were getting sued and losing zillions of dollars. The, uh, and and this is not to say that all that was junk science, too. A lot of it was righteous litigation. Ford Pinto's got taken off the roads you know, what I mean, things like this.
1: But they'd bring in doctors to say, look, my client's leukemia was caused by the, I'm making this up, but the, the heart medication that he took for five years. And I believe that because X, Y, Z.
0: Right. And so you get an expert come in and say that in very sympathetic plaintiffs often, you know, and juries were awarding huge verdicts. I mean, they still do. But corporate America you know, was getting tired of it and wanted to, you know, try to block this type of evidence from coming into court or court to do a better job of policing that type of evidence. So the Daubert case is the case that they teed up. And so it went to the Supreme Court and it worked And that the Supreme Court decided after Daubert that judges, federal judges, and eventually almost all the states except for a handful um, adopted the same approach. Is that they were going to have to act as gatekeepers and that they weren't just going to defer to the scientific community and let the jury sort it out. They were going to have to apply basic scientific principles to a proffer of expert witness testimony to see whether or not it holds up. Doesn't mean that it's like, you know, the, the greatest evidence ever, but that it's has some basic scientific principles have been applied to this evidence, right? Something like, do we know what its air rate is? Something as simple as that, right? And so that decision was hailed as a reliability revolution. And it was, you know, for the civil defendants.
1: What was Dow Pharma getting sued for in that case?
0: There was a drug called Benetton that was alleged to cause birth defects and that the drug was used by pregnant women to mitigate morning sickness. And so the theory was that this drug had caused birth defects and they had some very sympathetic the Dauberts, you know, what I mean, who's, uh, that one of their children was born with something like almost like flippers for arms. Mm. And so it's, you know, a, a terrible birth defect, you know, what I mean, and, you know, this is true in criminal cases too, when you have really sympathetic plaintiffs or victims, you know, what I mean, like sometimes we turn off our critical thinking. And so that was the theory in that case. And... What they showed, and this is an empirical study that was done by Peter Neufeld, the co-founder of the Instance Project, about 10 years after Daubert showed that judges had been, you know, successfully eliminated or, you know, blocking so many more unreliable opinions from coming in in civil cases, but nothing had changed in the criminal side. Hmm. And that it wasn't even raised in the, the oral arguments around Dabbert in the Supreme Court that this would also, of course, it would apply to criminal cases as well. But nothing changed in the criminal legal system at all. And then I did a follow-up study with Professor Brandon Garrett in 2018 that showed nothing had changed even after we had multiple scientific reports that were Deeply critical of all forensic techniques, even after we had over 300 people wrongfully convicted and proven so by DNA evidence. And now, if you look at the National Registry of Exonerations, it's three, over 3,000. And those are just the ones that we know about. Is that still nothing had changed? You know, so the theme that I explore in the book is that this is poor people's science, right? Because they don't care. We don't care as a society about the scientific evidence that we're using to incarcerate and execute. Largely and disproportionately black and brown people and poor people in this country and the evidence is empirical It's stark. It's not me speculating. It's right there. We just don't care
1: You said so much there that I think resonates with Everything that is wrong with with the justice system But also a lot that's again wrong with us as people when a case involves, you know, the murder of a child or The rape and murder of a young woman. There's so much emotion, and there's so much just natural empathy and anger. That hard nosed justice, that rational justice. It's really the true test of the ability for the justice system to to hold up. Um, And you know, as you point out, these techniques because you know they're not science, but these techniques can be effective in persuading the jury to convict.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, the the three cases that, you know, formed the backbone of my book, you know, Eddie Lee Howard's case, Stephen Cheney's case, and Keith Harward's case, each of them were just the types of crimes that often lead to wrongful conviction. So with Eddie Lee Howard, it was an elderly white woman who was thought to have been um, raped and murdered and, you know, by a Black person, right? And so that... Same theme that we just talked about wrongful conviction and death sentence. And then the other two were the victims in that case were white middle class victims, which we prioritize in our criminal legal system above all other types of victims. And those were sensational crimes, right? You know, if you talk about Keith Harward's case, it's hard to imagine a more extreme lived nightmare.
1: Like when people ask, What's the worst, your worst nightmare? I, I can't imagine. Whew, I can't imagine worse.
0: Yeah. What happened was, is that there was a young married couple um, in their early 20s living in Newport News, Virginia, near the Navy base there. They had three little kids oh, yeah. that were asleep in the upstairs bedroom. And the husband and wife went to bed around midnight. One night after Jesse Peron was his name, came home from work where he was working at the Navy yard. And in the middle of the night, Somebody broke into the house wearing a sailor's uniform, went upstairs to the couple's bedroom, beat the husband to death with a crowbar in bed while Teresa Perrone, his wife, was next to him. And then he sexually tortured her for the next three hours in the house and fled. So she survived. The kids survived. Um, they slept through the entire thing. There were no suspects. There were no eyewitnesses. Uh, Teresa Perrone never got a real look at the sailor's face. um, He had put a diaper over her head during much of the attack. And the only thing that they had to go on was a vague description of somebody around 5'10", white person, clean-shaven, and a low-ranking Navy member because of the chevrons on the uh, on the sleeve of the uniform,
1: and it was interesting. You pointed out that that description, because it was so vague, matched oh uh, a couple thousand sailors.
0: Yeah. So the USS Carl Vinson was dry docked in Newport News Navy Base at the time. So there were thousands of soldiers that were assigned to that ship, and thousands that that resembled this description that Teresa Perrone had offered and she she too was hypnotized and and didn't come up with a better description and so the only real what they thought was evidence was bite marks on her thighs and you know in this like unlike so many of these cases we knew that they were bite marks because she testified that she'd been bitten right so often these entries that are claimed to be bite marks aren't even bite marks so, but this time we knew And so what they did, and this is probably the only time this has happened in history, is that they did essentially a dental dragnet, and that they got two dentists to get the dentition, right, the uh, outlines of people's teeth, all these thousands of sailors, and they tried to match them to the bite marks, right? And so they went through, and Keith Harward was identified as a potential biter during this, but he was excluded from having made, uh, possibly have made these bite marks by these two dentists. And then something happened, like so many of these cases that suddenly the investigation pivots because there's irrelevant information and these are subjective techniques. And now we have a new suspect. What happened with Mr. Harward was that he got into a drunken fight with his girlfriend. She hit him with a frying pan. He bit her on the shoulder and he got arrested.
1: So now we have a, a proven biter on the scene and someone who happens to be on the same boat where this monster is believed to be.
0: Precisely right. You know what I mean? And then so the detective actually takes Teresa Peron to Keith Harwood's arraignment on this assault charge, which I should say was ultimately dropped and asks her to make an identification in court. And what's really incredible is that she doesn't is that so many Victims would have been very happy to point him out. That's the suspect. That's the suspect. The police believe he's a fighter. He's a Navy. You know, what I mean, but one thing that we've seen in so many of these wrongful identification cases is that they ignore this fact, the facial hair, right? That Keith Harward,
1: he had a mustache, right?
0: And that's something that social science demonstrates people remember, like visible tattoos on necks or these types of like, like distinguishing features are much more reliable indicators of a reliable identification than something as vague as that. So him wearing a mustache should have been a signal. And her failure to identify him under those circumstances also should have been a sign. But it wasn't. They continued. He was the only suspect. So they continued that investigation. And after that, after he was identified as this biter. They brought in Lowell Levine, right, who is one of the founding fathers of the ABFO, who also testified in the Ted Bundy case and was this descendant forensic celebrity at the time. You know, they flew him in from New York to Newport News. He came down and a day later had identified Keith Harwood as the biter.
1: With a great level of certainty, am I right?
0: Very, very, very likely to be the biter, right? He said, you know, the proverbial two-headed calf, you know, I mean, would it, it would be, you know, if somebody else were to come along and make those same marks. And another dentist also testified to the same thing. And the two dentists who originally excluded Harward changed their minds. And in the end, six dentists all agreed that Keith Allen Harward was the only person in the world who could have made those bite marks on Teresa Prone's thighs. And it was enough to sentence him almost to death. And that the only reason that he survived was his parents getting on the witness stand and begging for their life. It was the only time that Keith Harward had ever seen his father weep was begging for his son's life after he'd been wrongfully convicted and he died before the DNA evidence proves that he was innocent. And, you know, when I was at the prison on the day that Harwood was released, and I write about this, I was talking to his brother who had been at the trial and always believed in his brother's innocence, did not think that he was capable of this type of grotesque violence and had no indication in his record that he was. He had no criminal record. And, but then Mo Levine got on the witness stand and he said the testimony was mesmerizing and that he began to doubt his own brother's innocence. He was asking himself, what are his brother's teeth marks doing on that victim's thighs?
1: A quick pause for lawyers listening for CLE credit. The code for this course is 10108. Again, that's 10108. And now back to the interview. It just adds to the nightmare of the scenario is not only is your life ruined and you're gonna to have to spend potentially the rest of your life in jail, you may you may face the death penalty, but somehow the idea of the ones who love you the most distrusting you or believing that you would be this type of monster is somehow on par with these other horrors, in in my mind, at least.
0: Yeah, and so many of our clients at The Innocence Project, even when they've been like, like Keith Harward, you know, conclusively proven innocent are still subject to the same prison re uh, reentry issues that everybody is right. You know what I mean? And, and that the fact that they were innocent doesn't matter. And often the meager reentry resources that are available to folks who are coming home from prison aren't available to exonerees because they were innocent. Right. So, you know, you don't meet the criteria.
1: Oh, wow. You know, adding insult to injury there. So, you know, in this case, What did it take? It it took, you had to bring a a special type of motion. How did you get Harwood out of prison?
0: So to be clear, it wasn't just me. I I was part of a legal team that included Dana Delger and Olga Axelrod at uh, the Innocence Project and paralegals and uh, Scadden Arms was part of that legal team as well. So we decided to focus on bite mark evidence. And my paralegal at the time, what I asked him to do was that I need to find every bite mark conviction ever, you know, in the history of time is that every like every law review article that's mentioned it, every case that's mentioned it, every newspaper article that's mentioned it. All of these convictions are inherently unreliable because they rest on junk science and any conviction that rests on junk science is inherently unreliable. So we started gathering them up. And, you know, a massive list of these cases.
1: Are we talking about hundreds of cases, thousands of cases?
0: Hundreds, but I'm sure that there are thousands. But we've, like, you know, identified, you know, I mean, you know, many were too old or people had died or people were out of prison already or, or had been executed. You know, I mean, we took posthumous cases. We took them all. And then Keith Harward's appellate opinion he found. And if you looked at the appellate opinion. If you are skeptical about bite marks, which of course we were, and he seemed innocent, I was like, "This is all they had, you know." This, this is a capital conviction. It was like they did a, a dragnet and they found him through this. What else is the the, the the victim didn't identify him? It was incredible to me that that this was enough, you know. What I mean, and even the appellate opinion, like it just wasn't this full throated. You know, this is a monster. Let's keep him in prison for the rest of his life. Type of opinion, which you typically see, right? You know, it was like, well, there was enough. There wasn't any, uh, you know, evidence pointing somewhere else. So we're affirming this conviction. This just wasn't like normal. It was just like, so he gave me that opinion. We looked in our intake queue, and he had written to us, you know, years before. We have thousands of people that are waiting for our help. You know, what I mean, and we wrote him a letter. And, you know, you still want us to represent you. And of course he did. And he'd already been in for 32 years at that point. And, you know, about a year and a half after we took on his case, he was exonerated.
1: Did you use DNA evidence in this case as well? Or was it just on undermining the bite mark?
0: It just shows kind of how arbitrary exoneration is, right? It's just how lucky that like our clients are one in a million. You know, it's just like, you know, Eric Pilch comes across the appellate opinion. And then we had a legal fellow here that just called up the the Virginia Supreme Court asking for case files and stumbled upon the DNA evidence that was still preserved, was sitting in, in the court storage area. You know I mean? It was just like, it was all there to be tested. And then we had a DNA that was willing to, to face the truth, willing to have the DNA tested, which is often not the case. You know, I talk a lot about the principle of finality in my book is that, you know, is to block, you know, really learning the truth. And that didn't happen here. So all these things happen. And then it identified the DNA that we tested in that case, identified the actual perpetrator, this gay named Crotty, you know, was also a sailor on the USS Carl Vinson at the time. And he went on to commit multiple crimes across the country and died in prison at the time, you know, and so often wrongful conviction, you know, I mean, the actual perpetrator goes on to commit more crimes while our clients are in prison for
1: it. Chris, is there a test in for overturning finality? Is there some type of legal roadmap, I suppose, in analyzing whether or not a case is ripe for review?
0: In all states have some statute that allows prisoners to go back to court on newly discovered evidence grounds. Some states are incredibly restrictive, right? So, you know, less than a year later, if you haven't brought in new evidence, then it's forever final and that you can never bring in new evidence. And, you know, some, it can only be DNA evidence. It can't be, you know, something that was, you know, overturned, you know, I mean, Uh, or like a Brady violation or the barrier burial of exculpatory evidence so all of them have you know some mechanism to go back to court on newly discovered evidence grounds in a dna case usually the new evidence is the dna itself you know i mean but you also have to demonstrate that with due diligence you could not have found it during the time of trial and that it would have made a difference in the outcome of the proceeding which is pretty high bar to set yeah. And then you talk about, and I talk a lot about this in junk science convictions, and this is why Stephen Cheney's case is a really good example of this and, and Eddie Lee Howard's is as well, is that we didn't have DNA evidence, right? I was totally persuaded that these men were innocent. And Stephen Cheney had nine alibi witnesses and, and Eddie Lee Howard had three, right And so and junk science was enough to overcome them. And so how do you get back into court on newly discovered evidence grounds when, one, the legal system isn't even really willing to acknowledge what every mainstream scientist that has ever examined any of these the techniques that I talk about in my book has all agreed with unanimity that these are unreliable techniques? And it's totally opposite. Right? Totally opposite in the legal system, right? Which ignore mainstream scientists and rely on the experts whose livelihoods depend on the continued acceptance of this technique. And so you try to get a court to understand and to accept that this is not a reliable verdict and that we must have fair trials and that at the very least, if somebody is convicted, what we now know today to be unreliable forensic evidence, that person is entitled to a new trial free from the taint of junk science. And that's really what, you know, if you can get a conviction, you know, based in by playing fair, you know I mean, by not using subjective speculation, by having real evidence in the case, then that's what we have in this country. That's the jury trial system, right? But if you cheat, right, if you bury exculpatory evidence, if you use junk science, you know I mean, we have to have mechanisms to go back into court. And so often, you know, like the only systemic view that you get on the use of these techniques is not the original, not the so, not the Walter Marx case. They're thinking, oh, well, if I let this in, you know, this is by, you know, who knows what will happen? You know, I'm letting this Pandora's box out or a virus. I'm like letting the virus out of the lab. Is that you'll get on the opposite end? Well, if I overturn this conviction, does that mean all of these convictions that rest on these techniques are suddenly going to be back in the court?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's got to be the fear that's going through some of these judges' minds or going through some of the prosecutors' minds is, you know, what about all those guilty people that I cleaned up and got off the streets? Are you going to tell me that I got to redo all that as well?
0: Well, there's a couple of, and one is yes, you know what I mean? But the, the more accurate, specific point is that not asking to swing open all the prison doors, right? If we're going to use scientific evidence, we have to be comfortable with uncertainty and we have to be comfortable with the fact that science changes and what we know today, we may not believe tomorrow. So that's just the reality of science. And we continue to use more and more and more scientific evidence in our legal system. So we have to grapple with that reality. And just the idea that you're entertaining a motion for a new trial on this doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to overturn the conviction, right? The judge is going to look at the rest of the evidence in the case and weigh it, you know, as to whether or not that there was enough evidence without this junk science. Often I disagree with the way that evidence is analyzed, you know what I mean? Because there's nothing more powerful than scientific evidence in criminal trials.
1: Nothing. It comes across so authoritative that it's highly persuasive
0: yeah you know you get somebody that is given the imprimatur of an expert explicitly by the court in front of the jury they're the only ones on on the witness stand that are allowed to offer opinions they use the the mantle of science to be persuasive they're thought to be objective they're thought to not have a stake in the outcome of the proceedings and jurors are like the rest of us they're not really like thinking about well, does this meet the standard of reasonable doubt what they're trying to think about is like what happened I want to get the right answer here, right? I want to convict the guilty person. I want to acquit the innocent person.
1: You quote a trial where a, I think it's a dentist of some sort who starts his testimony by talking about how he helped identify the bodies during in the aftermath of 9-11, which just seemed shocking to me that the judge would allow this person to be set up as such a hero. And then- yeah. The defense is supposed to question his integrity or his uh, scientific method.
0: Yeah. So forensic dentists, to be clear, many of them performed, you know, heroic even work in identifying the victims of September 11th. And the sad and really outrageous thing that I talk about in the book is this conflation of the identification of human brains with bite mark evidence as basically opposite sides of the same coin. And, you know, the, the way that I describe that in the book, it's really more like a geologist claiming because they can identify rock, that they can identify the rock that was used to bash in somebody's head, right? So they're totally different, totally unrelated things.
1: Well, you uh, you know, you actually write about tool mark analysis, which seems very similar, where it's where it's that, where it's not only was this injury likely caused by a hatchet, but it was this hatchet or this screwdriver because, well, this is a very special screwdriver.
0: To the exclusion of every other screwdriver ever manufactured in the history of time. And that sounds like an extravagant claim. Sounds like an outrageous claim, but it's accepted in courts today. You know what I mean? I just litigated a case in Colorado that I talk about in the book, the Jimmy Genrich case. It's a series of bombings in the late 80s and early 90s. And the only physical evidence against him, there are no eyewitnesses. There's no confession. There's, you know, nothing other than this tool mark evidence. And one of the marks that they claim that Jimmy Gemmerick's wire stripper, there's a mark on a two millimeter wire and the mark itself is about one, one hundredth of an inch. And on this wire stripper that has a knockoff that there's zillions of these have been produced Is they were made in China and. The expert at trial testified that Jimmy Genrick's wire stripper are the only wire strippers that could possibly have made this mark to the exclusion of every other ever manufactured. And we did this hearing in 2022 and the tool mark experts are standing by that opinion. And we know that there's no statistical database that would validate any of that claim,
1: and the court was comfortable with that.
0: We're waiting for the court's opinion as we're briefing that right now, so we'll see.
1: Well, I mean, that's another thing that you mentioned is that you know some of the cases look as though they're historical, as though okay, those were the the bad old days when when you could you could point to a bite and say, well, hey, uh, this is. These are the teeth that made that bite. But as you mentioned, some of this junk science, and you, you say, is it, am I right to say that all of it is still being used?
0: Or- there is no technique that I write about in my book that is not still admissible in all 50 states. And in 2022, there was a case in Michigan in the early part of the year that used individualization testimony on in a bite mark case to convict a man in 2022. Right. And then I write about uh, an, evident, uh, an admissibility hearing in the book that was held in Manhattan, 100 Center Street.
1: This was a Fry hearing here in town. We're, we're, we're both in New York City.
0: Right. So, and, you know, the, the judge, after listening to testimony from Dr. Karen Kafadar, who is the chair of the statistics department at UVA has sat on National Academy of Sciences panels more than once, many of them dealing with forensics, has consulted with NASA and the Department of Defense and knows what she's talking about, right? She testified on behalf of the defense. So did uh, Mary Bush, Dr. Mary Bush, who had done real research in bite marks. But then they, the prosecution, the Manhattan District Attorney, um, through Melissa Morgus, put on some a dentist named David Sen, who I write a little bit about in the book, and Sen talks about the work that he did in identifying bodies in nine eleven, just a few blocks from where we were sitting in court that day, and conflated these techniques and talked about Ted Bundy. You know, in twenty fourteen, we were talking about right, and Ted Bundy still you know creating new victims, and that the judge pointed to precedent, pointed to you know the 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 hearing you know called gathered up all this information, about a year and a half of litigation, and let it all in without any qualifications whatsoever. Dr. Kafadar is, you know, an esteemed scientist. And really, the opinion should have really mattered, should have been persuasive. And that it wasn't was really my, my first experience with how hard it was going to be to eliminate even this one technique that we know has really nothing can be said for it. You know what I mean? Like the evidence is overwhelming that forensic dentists can't even identify a human bite mark as such. So to think of that you can match it to somebody, it's just absurd, but it's still today.
1: Well, Chris, I know you have to go. Uh, so, But before you do, maybe we could touch on a couple of things. One, there has been some, I guess I'm going to say progress, but there's been some movement in identifying these uh Fake scientific methods or these I think they are on a spectrum. So you know these unreliable, uh, and some are much more unreliable than others, and helping to identify how unreliable they are. Maybe you could speak to that, and then I'd love to touch on what you think we could do better, How could we improve uh, going forward?
0: Yeah, so I, I should be very clear that I don't think that all forensics are junk at all, you know, what I mean, in that um, there are techniques that are very valuable for the investigation and prosecutions of crimes, what we have, you know, I mean, then you think about it, like pattern matching techniques on a spectrum, what you, you know, you have, you know, a hair microscopy and bite marks, are probably the bottom of that, and probably the top is fingerprint evidence, right? So like you, you know, probably, you know, like me, I believe that human fingerprints are probably unique, you know, that's not a scientifically validated fact, but it's also not really the issue in forensics, you know, I mean, because what you have in forensics are smudges at crime scenes, and that we don't really know how much information that we need to make a reliable match and a reliable identification, right? And we don't know, importantly, we don't know how similar people's fingerprints might be and how that might be. Um, captured in, you know, a partial latent print. So you can take, you know, what is a reliable forensic technique and make it unreliable, depending on, you know, how far we're willing to stretch if we have, you know, very little evidence at a crime scene and there aren't rules that preclude a forensic effort. The expert from making that stretch, you can you could take a technique that is fundamentally reliable and make it unreliable, you know, depending on the circumstance, you know, what I mean, but there are, you know, many other, you know, mass spectrometry is a valuable tool and their their toxicology has um, been demonstrated to be you know, under a lot of circumstances reliable. So there, there are many different areas of forensics, and I don't want to like, you know, put them all in the bucket. And I was trying to be very clear about what I meant in the book when I'm talking about junk science. But I also want to be clear that these are the most commonly used techniques that I'm writing about in the book, right? So the uh, it's not like that this is an esoteric area of criminal justice. It's not this is mainstream. And you're asking, what can we do? Right? Because I want to be optimistic, you know, it's my job, you know, I mean, is to try to help reform this system that has allowed all this. And what we advocate for, apart from jurors being skeptical, right and like keep on your critical thinking hats and serve on juries and read the book because it'll disabuse you of a lot of the mythology that's like surrounding forensics but what we need is a something like the national institute of standards and technology which is a scientific entity of the federal government to do validation research of these forensic techniques absent the adversarial process right and that we need upstream fixes we need a something like the FDA, you know, that we've talked about earlier about, you know, that test consumer products, they have to have something like that. in forensics. I, it's, you know, the stakes are life and liberty, not about uncomfortable toilet paper, right? And so we have to have some form of validation research that isn't under the pressure of a criminal prosecution. Because in a criminal prosecution, the pressure is to convict. And judges are very reluctant to take tools away. We talked earlier from prosecutors that will get those convictions, but if they have some objective outside entity where there isn't a Ted Bundy that's going to benefit from this or, or be hurt by something like this, but it's just scientific research that would go a long way toward fixing this problem. And if, even if you don't have that, the simplest thing to do, which we could do today is blind the experts from irrelevant case information and only give them information about the task at hand. I do this with every expert that I use. I never tell them anything about the facts of this case. And when I put them on the witness stand, I asked them, I was like, did you know anything about this case, right? Did I tell you about, did we want a match? Did we want an exclusion?
1: And I'm sure that also has the benefit of setting you up for a good cross of the other side's expert.
0: Right, because they've gotten all this biasing information from, you know, from soup to nuts. And we see it, and I talk about it in the book too, like these opinions that start off pretty mild. Oh, it's consistent with, you know, then you get to the pressure of trial and it's one in a million, right? And that's the adversarial system at work.
1: Chris Fabricant is the Director of Strategic Litigation at the Innocence Project and his recent book is called Junk Science. Chris, it is always a pleasure, enlightening, mildly horrifying, but good to see you.
0: My pleasure, thanks for having me on Joel.
1: And thank you for watching Talks on Law. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit
0: Talksonlaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.